I am Emily Lyons. In 2009, without a high school degree and no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. But since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be lifted and shifted by these people too. After all, all inspiring people are inspired people. So get ready to be inspired. This is Mind Your Business. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Very well. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. What's been going on? Hey, you know, always something. Busy, busy as usual. How about yourself? Yeah, same, same. Where are you right now? I'm in my office, upstate New York, in my house in Bearsville, outside of Woodstock. Mm, very nice. Where about, right. What about you? I'm in Ontario, Canada. Yeah. All right. So I'm so glad that we can finally do this. <laughs> I know. It feels like it's taken forever. Are you kind of reaching out to me and, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. And then, you know, and then it kind of not the month goes by or two. And anyway, it's good to be honest. I'm not even sure what I'm in for, but I'm all yours for the next, whatever it is, 45 minutes for now. It's funny because I was looking at all the different stuff you've done and I was so surprised. I mean, you've written books. I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> what can I say? I've been around for a long time. I mean, you know... <laughs> Like, I know that my brother was asking who I was podcasting with today. And I said, oh, Nigel Barker. And he's like, oh, America's Next Home Model. And I was surprised that he knew that. He was like, I loved him on that show. Oh, I think. Nice. And then I, I was thinking, like, how did that even come to be? What, the show Top Model? Like, how did you end up on that show? I mean, you know, very organically, to be honest. It was not really very premeditated. I watched the show like everybody else did. And on season one, it was one of the very first, if not the first, a big reality TV show that was about fashion. And so everyone in the fashion industry watched it and other people too. But it was a kind of a cult show in its first season and it was on a network called UPN that doesn't even exist anymore in the US. And, you know, I knew a few people who were working on it because the industry is quite small and it certainly was then. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who was working in fashion kind of was connected to that show and what have you. And I really was asked actually originally just if I would do one episode and, you know, with that one episode, just be a photographer. That was it. At the time, they would put you on film and they would cast you and what have you and give you a screen test to see if you were worth kind of putting on even for one episode. And I kind of did the screen test. I thought it went well. I was excited. I thought, I'm OK, this will be fun. How fun would it be to do an episode of Top Model, this new show? I've not done TV before. And I heard nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of two weeks went by, a month went by, six weeks went by. And I just thought, oh, well, I guess I either blew it or I just wasn't exciting enough or interesting enough or they just, they just weren't interested. And then I got a call at my studio. One of my assistants answered it and said, oh, you know, Nigel, I think it's those people you spoke to, that show, that top model show. And I'm like, OK, pass it over. And I spoke to them and they said, look, really sorry for not getting back in touch sooner. But essentially, every time you've shown your tape to anybody, they've loved it. And it's been approved and gone to a higher level. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that really means. And they said, well, it's gone all the way up to sort of the head guys at CBS. And they don't want you just to be a judge for one episode. They would like to invite you to be a permanent fixture on the show and be a judge and, you know, one of the, you know, the photographer and judge for the entire season. And I said, yes, obviously. But that led to 
one, two, three. I went on to do up until season 18. So I, I was the longest standing judge wow. on America's Next Top Model other than Tyra Banks. And it was something that I no one had any idea was going to happen. We didn't know we were about to create one of the biggest TV shows in history. That's so fun. Were you nervous? No, <laughs> it wasn't. <that. laughs> like I said, it, it happened very organically. It wasn't that nerve wracking. You know, I was the thing about Top Model, unlike say, not say all, but m- many reality shows that have come since, is that it was very much created with people who were involved in the industry. Yeah. So I was surrounded by people I knew. And I was surrounded by people that this is what I'd always done. I mean, I've been working in the fashion industry one way or the other for 30 years now. But back then, I've been doing it, you know, my entire life. I had left school at 18 and sort of had meant to go to medical school, but ended up going into taking a year off, becoming a model and going to Milan and basically never looking back. And so I, ever since I was 18, I'd been one way or the other working in fashion. And, you know, so it wasn't scary because everyone around me was very much like my people, you know, and and it wasn't very entertainment. Like since then, it became more and more entertainment. What I mean by that is, is that originally it was very much fashion people. And then the bigger we got, and the more famous the show became and everything else, the more Hollywood it became too. You know, so it became sort of very big. You know, on the first season that I did, you know, we all shared, a, you know, a trailer. We had one hair and makeup artist that we all shared. We would kind of take turns to get changed in the changing room. Like it was, it was small. It was tiny. And we all just kind of were together in this small space with this tight budget and having fun doing something. The show became a behemoth where... You know, later on, you know, we all had our own trailers. We all had our own hair and makeup artists. We all had our own cars. We would have decoy cars. We had major security. We would send advanced teams to even to go to the restaurant before we went into the restaurant (laughs) to check to make sure that it was safe to go in. And then we would go in one at a time with people calling. I mean, it was bonkers. I mean, I went to places, long story. It is a funny story. I was in like, where was I? Philippines. You know, we would go all over the world with the show, but I was in the Philippines and I was getting swarmed by people like really a lot of people at the time. And they provided me with 11 security guards, 11, right? All around, crazy security guards everywhere. They had to get me from A to B across the town, across Manila. They actually shut the freeway. They shut the freeway, cleared all cars off it, and had me in a car with police on it in front and back and drove across an empty freeway that's I was the president. I mean, I'm talking completely bonkers, right? So the show grew to become a huge, massive success. You know, syndicated to 150 countries with an audience of 100 million people watching every week. It was bigger wow. than Baywatch and Sesame Street as a, um, you know, something that America produced that went overseas. So it was really a massive show, bigger overseas than it was even nationally. I even met a guy once who said, I'm your biggest fan. I'm your biggest fan. I'm like, no, I'm sure you are. And he's like, no, really, I am. And he pulled up his shirt and he had my name tattooed on his arm. You know, so crazy stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't realize. Grounding, Emily. Very grounding. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just normal stuff. Normal, you know, everyday. Normal everyday stuff. We all go through that. I wonder if like the show being so how you know how it was now with the world being so different and body positive and accepting of everything if if a show like that could even come out in today's world in many ways part of the way that the world has become that way is because of a show like top model i mean the world was not that way you know years when we did the show and the show was responsible for having the very first competition for full-figured models that were called plus size back then that we called full-figured and now it's changed the name of the whole 
you know, business. We were a show that encouraged models of diversity and color when yeah. there were very few models of color walking or, or working, period. That was obviously Tyra's, you know, big motivation was to change that. You know, we had petite modeling competitions on top model. There were you know, very few to no models who were below a certain height and size. You know, the show would be different if it were today, but it wouldn't be wouldn't not be today. You know what I mean? I think it the big thing you can't do today that we did on that show was the fact you can't make a show that costs that much money today because the budgets aren't there, right? We, our show is back in the day when shows, we had sort of all kinds of money to do all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, we hired, you know, if we wanted to shut down Sydney Harbour Bridge in Sydney, we would. If we wanted to shoot in the, the Forbidden City in Beijing, we would, and we did. And we were the very first Americans to ever do that. You know, we went with hundreds of people to foreign countries. And, you know, it was just crazy town, but at the same time, it was an amazing ride. But um, no, I, you know, I, look, I think that, you know, certainly there's a lot that was said and done on the show that people look back with hindsight and say, God, you should never have said that. And probably not, not absolutely right, right? We probably shouldn't have said and done that. But at the time, no one had ever said or done that before anyway. So it was. it's very easy to look back at hindsight and go, oh, that was wrong or that was right. It's like, you know, but many times without people pushing envelopes and buttons and doing the same things, things don't change, things don't move. And, you know, conversation, you know, and change happens because people step out of their comfort zone, you know, and that's what the show was, a lot of it was about, was opening, you know, the curtains behind a business like the fashion industry and the modeling industry that had been a very much closed shop for, you know, its entire life, uh, you know, life of the industry. Yeah, it was really eye-opening. It was interesting to see how it all worked. People loved it. They loved the BTS. They loved the making of. I mean, one of my favorite things is meeting young photographers who, or even just not even young, but these days, just photographers who've been working for like 15 years, 20 years sometimes. And they're like, I got into this photography and became a fashion photographer or a photographer because I watched you on the show. And I didn't even know that that's what it was like. And, I, you know, you, you made me dream and I'm here doing this now because of you and because of the show. And that's, you know, really special. How did you go from model to photographer originally? I mean, that's not such a leap, but, you know, it's, there's a few of us out there. But in large part, because I mean, I'd always been creative, despite the fact that I was into the sciences and hence going to medical school. But I had studied biology, chemistry, physics and math to do medicine. That were my, those are my A-levels in the UK. But I had done these humanities courses of fashion design, tailoring, pattern cutting, weaving, all fashion related and loved it. And I also studied photography and pottery, woodwork, metalwork, all these arts. I loved wow. it. I, really, I love being creative. I like making things. And I still to this day, any way, shape or form. And you mentioned earlier that I've done a lot of stuff. It's, a lot of it has to do with, I just like doing things. I like being creative. So writing books or, you know, doing whatever it might be. As long as I'm making something or doing something different, even cooking dinner, quite frankly, is something where I'm like, you know, I'm, I feel fulfilled. And, you know, so when I got into modeling, you know, it was the late 80s. And you have to realize that was the sort of era of the supermodel and was pre-grunge, pre-androgyny, you know, pre-heroin chic. And I kind of modeled through that period. And then, you know, and I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4". I'm, you know, I used to play rugby when I was a kid. So I was quite built. And then, you know, that worked for the 80s, the kind of big, you know, over the top kind of vibe, sexy kind of look that, you know, that 80s models had. And then came Heron Chic, which was a really a knee jerk reaction from the fashion industry to the excesses of the 80s, to the over the topness. And that often happens in fashion. You'll get whatever the look of the feel is, 
the next thing that comes along is is like the opposite or the reverse of what you just had because people are sick of it and they don't want it anymore. You know, and there were designers like Anna Sui and Mark Jacobs and, you know, magazines like ID and Dazed and Confused and The Face and that all came along and it was all, you know, and, and models like Kate Moss, you know, and Kristen McNenemy and what have you, who were sort of known for being androgynous and for being sort of cool and unidentifiable necessarily as being male or female and all that kind of thing. And it didn't matter. You know, Calvin Klein came out with a perfume called One, which was everyone to wear. It didn't matter if you're male or female. All that was new in the 90s. And I kind of realized at the time that someone like myself was never going to be androgynous. And I certainly didn't look like heroin chic. I was far too big and, you know, tall and obviously kind of looked, you know, a very different role. And I'm like, but I didn't want to give up on everything that I'd learned. And I love the industry. And so I started transitioning from one side of the camera to the other and utilizing, you know, my knowledge and experience to continue. And mid-90s, you know, I met my wife in 94. She and her sister, who is an identical twins, they kind of became my muses. And they were really the impetus for me to really start taking pictures properly and concentrating because I had these two beautiful women who were just, you know, sensational and doing a lot of work, working for Vogue and all this great stuff. And they had lots of friends who were sort of models and successful. And and I, you know, sort of followed them all around the world, taking their picture, you know, on the sidelines and building my portfolio. And eventually we all moved to New York together. And I set up my studio in 96 and sort of the rest is history, as they say. I was wondering how you met your wife because I had seen that her and her sister are models. And so I figured it must have been some overlap and you just celebrated, was it your 30th year of marriage? It was our 30th year of being together because it was 94. So this is next year will be 30 years. and But it was 24 years of marriage. We got married in 99. So wow. we were together for five years before we got married and have been partying like it's 1999 ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you got your daughter into modeling now too, I've seen. Yeah, no, it's crazy, right? You know, you have kids and they're babies and all of a sudden they're not and they're teenagers. And then, you know, so I've got a 14-year-old daughter who is over six foot tall. Wow. Yeah, and she's been that tall since she was 13. So she started modeling when she was 13 because she could, <laughs> not because she probably should have, but she could. And she kind of loves it. She's always been very much one to jump on stage and perform and sing in public and you know do all the things that most people are, are terrified of doing or incredibly embarrassed to try and do. She has no fear at all. She's incredibly confident and you know, will do anything and everything. And, and she's also great at sport. And so all that confidence helps in sport because, you know, you've got to be able to you know, catch the ball, hit the ball, run with the ball, you know, shout, talk, communicate. She's very good at that. And so it was kind of a natural that she kind of fell into modeling and walked in New York Fashion Week about a year and a half ago for the first time and has oh, now wow. done many, many different shows all over the place and walked in New York Fashion Week three, four times now for different designers, but for different seasons. Gets called back, has appeared in Vogue, has just did her first cover of a magazine just recently over the summer and age 14. And they didn't just do one cover. They liked her so much, they gave her three covers, which is unheard of, to be honest. She shot a campaign for you know, a new company, the Beautiful Jacket campaign. And, and she's working, but she doesn't, you know, she's still at school. She's a kid. So she, it's, you know, it's all controlled and very much like only when in weekends and holidays and, you know, when it's not school and it's not sport because sport comes first and so does school. So, you know, but it's fun. It's fun for me. 
Has she gotten an agent or do you kind of? Uh, no, dad's the agent. Mom and dad are the agent right now. <laughs> We've had a few agents ask to represent her, but it's too early. You know, and the problem with agents are they'll they'll want her to work because they'll want to make money from her, mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, there's all good time for all that kind of stuff. Right now, it's like I said, it's, she's a kid. So it's like, look, have some fun, make a bit of pocket money, you know, dip your toes in, sort of get a feel for it. And as the years go on, you'll get more comfortable with the industry. You'll know what you're doing and you'll be streaks ahead of everyone else because most people are starting maybe 17, 18, 19 years old. You'd have been doing it since you were 13. So you won't feel nervous. Not that she does. I mean, that's the thing. I watch her walk down a runway with models in their 20s in heels that are sort of four inch, five inch heels. And she's towering above all the other models. And I walked in the other day backstage to say hi to her before she went on at a Custo Barcelona show at New York Fashion Week. And there she was, perched on a sort of stool with about 15 other models around her in a circle as she was talking to all of them and holding court. And I'm like, and, and these were women who were like literally sort of 18, 19, in mid-20s. And they would turn around to me. They were like, your daughter's amazing. I can't, and, I, and, she, and I'm like, you're loving this, aren't you? Absolutely loving all of this attention. <laughs> she's, just, you know, but she's, like I said, she's built for it. So, you know, it's good for her. I'm very happy and excited for her. As I am my son, who's a, a budding designer and fashionista and, you know, is an artist and, you know, started his own fashion label during the pandemic, which, you know, he's done pretty well with called Monstar. I've seen it. I've seen it. It is really cool. He's very talented. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's just that it's sort of that came out of nowhere too, you know, but you know, you, he's 17, about to be 18, got a girlfriend, you know, driving a car. And the other day I came back from a flight and there at the airport to pick me up was my son. <laughs> it's, you're like, what? How did that happen? You know, it's, I was changing your diaper just the other day. Yeah. me up from the airport. I'm like, okay, you know. He never wanted to to get into the industry, modeling? Yeah, I mean, he has done a bit, a Mm -hmm. bit of modeling. You know, it's different. It's a different industry for men. It always has been. You know, it's, it's very much a female dominated industry. There's a lot more work for women. Women are much more, you know, keen to buy clothes, to buy makeup, to buy beauty products. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot more work for women and there's more money in it for women so it's, it's an easier um not it's not really easier but it's they're just there's more availability there's more jobs on offer and you know and he's very much into basketball and his art and, he, and i think if it came along he's also not as just not as eager in general you know and it's an industry where it's tough it's like acting you know it's sort of and like many industries but there's a lot of competition for very few places and so one you have to be right for the job two you have to be willing and able and three, you have to be eager and keen, you know, and all those things, right? And then you have to be lucky <laughs> too, right? So yeah. there's a lot of pieces that have to come around, right time, right place, you know, right script, right whatever. And, you know, and if you're not 100%, you know, then maybe it, it doesn't mean it won't happen. I mean, I, I know people who've been modeling and in acting who never really cared too much about it, but just got darn lucky and became a success or something because not because they really tried and i know other people who tried very hard and never became a success so but all in all if you really want to do well in it you have to have a good head on your shoulders and understand the business and know how to work it mm. did you write any of this in any of your books about how to succeed kind of in the industry because I- um, not exactly i mean i've written a few books most of my books are connected to the industry as someone looking in and commentating on how you know extraordinary other people have been in the business so i wrote a book that became a new york times bestseller called models of influence and it's really it talks about the extraordinary women who i believe 
are the sort of true supermodels, many of which are well known as supermodels, but many of which are also were overlooked or potentially aren't considered household names, but had done certain specific things within their lifetime or in the industry that shifted the needle for women's rights, women's, uh, you know, for equality, for business, for, you know, who changed the look and the, of the times, who stood for certain aspects of beauty and and changed the paradigm, whether it's height, size, look, feel, you know, whatever it might be, even business, you know, people like Elle McPherson, who's struck some of the first, very first big deals and that changed the industry and, and you know, so that people didn't have to just model for other people, but they could model for themselves, right? They could create their own industry, own their own brand. You know, there, there are certain people that really changed the face of how the business is done. And I think that was exciting. And they were, to my point, models that influenced the world. So, you know, my version of a supermodel. Okay, that's an even better book that I need to read. <laughs> yeah, check it out. I did another book called The Beauty Equation. And that is, that yeah. that's much more about channeling your inner beauty and your, you know, sort of traits that I believe are in every one of us. And that, you know, without it sounding trite, yes, obviously, the modeling industry specifically, you may need to be a certain height, certain shape, certain, certain looks, certain what have you. But reality is, is that, you know, when we find people attractive and we fall in love and we make friends, that's nothing to do with whether someone's a model or not, right? That's to do with whether, you know, the, the chemistry is there. And that chemistry has to do with your natural allure, your natural sense of humor, you know, your personality and the way you move, the way you talk, the way you speak, the way you behave, your charm, you know, that your sort of essence, and which is sounds intangible, but, you know, there are things that I've looked and seen and learned, certainly as a portrait photographer over the many years that I've done this, that is, is an insight into people's behavior. So that book is specifically about that. And it's about encouraging people to find their inner beauty and let it out, let it shine, you know, because I've seen people who are physically, physically perfect or gorgeous, but actually not very attractive as individuals because of the way they behave and speak and sound. And mm. so you, you know, you're turned off them very easily. And I've known many, many people who physically perhaps have don't tick all the boxes, but are the most attractive, sexy, gorgeous people you've ever met. And you want to be around them all the time. You love them, they're your friends and you adore them, you know, because of who they are, what they do, and how they act and how they behave. And I think that's, you know, the sort of defining moment that we have to sort of, you know, that's the most important thing. And I think, you know, if, if anything, if our industry is guilty of anything, it's guilty of trying to, you know, hide that part of the reality of the world. So what are some of those things? Some of those things that make people unattractive and make people... Well, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, I mean, you know, it's, I think if you're in a bar, for example, you may see someone across the room and you're like, wow, that person's really attractive. And it's probably just the way they're moving, the way they put their hand through their hair, the way they're, the way they're smiling, chatting, you know, talking to somebody, they're communicating. And, you know, then you get to speak to them. And, and then that's there's that, that moment, like, then how do they approach you? How do they speak? How do they sound? You know, I'll tell you, like, with my wife, when I first met her, I was 22. And she was just turned 19. We were kids and I didn't know, I suddenly didn't know what to say. I sort of always positioned, thought about myself as like a, a bit of a player. I you know, always had one liners up my sleeve and, you know, could, you know, if I saw some cute girl, I would have something to say. And there I was and I was kind of like, I didn't know what to say. And I don't know why. And I just kind of suddenly thought, it's like, because I wanted to say something because I just saw this, you know, just met this girl who was, and her sister we were both sitting there and I'm like, beautiful girls and I'd been told about them by my her agent who called me up and said you've got to meet this girl she's amazing and so it was a bit of a setup it's, my wife did not know at the time that it had been a setup and I had these awful 
really awful because I just come in the night before being bitten by mosquitoes. So I had these really dreadful, massive, swollen bites that were like oozing, like oh, I don't know, like a liquid out of the top of the mic. And I'm allergic to these things. I get these horrible bites if I get bitten. Oh. And it's got better since I've got older. But when I was young, it was terrible. And I literally looked at her and was like, "Hi, you're new, right? You're new to Milan. Welcome. You know, I'm Nigel. And you know, you know, I'm. By the way, just to let you know, be careful because the mosquitoes this time of year are really bad. And I pulled up my sleeve and I was like, "Look!" And I showed her my arm with these huge swellings, and they were massive. Like each one was like sort of three or four inches wide, but like an inch high and and red and like bleeding. And 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 the poor thing looked at me and just said. Oh, honey, that's, you know, that's nothing. I come from Alabama. And in Alabama, you know, the mosquitoes have got a worse bite than the alligators. And she goes, I've got something perfect for you for that. And she's like, and she, and she grabbed my arm and she like wanted to look at it and touch it. And, and then she was like, oh, and I was thinking to myself, what did I just do? Why did I just say that? That was the worst <laughs> pickup line ever. But she said to me later, one of the things she liked about me was the fact that I was, you know, self-effacing, that I would say something as goofy as that. And I wasn't trying to be all cool. She said that most of the guys that she met who were like male models, you know, were all trying to say cool things. And I said like the most uncool thing. And that made her kind of find me cute. So guys out there, you know, there's there are all kinds of secrets to getting it right. And sometimes it's not what you expect. And, you know, I've got another really funny story, actually, which I'll quickly tell you. But we went on a date later. And I think for security reasons, she brought her sister and then four of her friends who were all models. So it was me and six girls, all models were in Milan. I was trying to be the cool guy at this point. I'm like, okay, this is cool. I've got beautiful women all around me. We're in the park. We're in Milan. We opened a bottle of wine and we had cheese and we're sitting on a blanket. And I felt like I was holding court. I was sitting there chatting to all these girls, making them laugh and saying funny things, telling stories. And you know, I put my hand back and I don't know. I just as I was leaning back and you know on the grass, and I went and I brought my hand forward, and I kind of. By the way, back then I used to have really long hair, like you know, down to my shoulders, like a bit like Fabio. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as I rubbed my hand through my hair, I kind of like was like, like what the what's that? And I kind of like felt something like in my fingers, and I remember like wiping it across my face. No. And I was like, and then all these girls were looking at me, and their faces were like, oh no! And I looked down at my hand. And it was covered in like this brown poop. And I was like, oh. and I rubbed it on my shirt. I had put my hand into an old dog turd that stank. One of those horrible, horrible, stinky, stinky ones, you know, with a brown crust and then the yellow on the inside. It was like horrible, like a, like a creme brulee of poo. And I just smushed it. And I had put it into my hair, <laughs> rubbed it across my face, on my mouth, and then down my shirt <laughs> with six girls in front of me. And I'm like, oh, I'm so married to <laughs> My wife's looking at me going like, oh my God, it was my girlfriend. Not even my girlfriend. I wasn't even dating her. I was just, I was hoping to date her. I jumped up. I ran like a lunatic into a fountain that they have in Milan everywhere. Jumped in the fountain, ripped my shirt off, washed my hair and face, came back and I was standing there bewildered looking at these girls thinking okay can someone just kill me now and my wife actually took off her she had like a, like a blouse on she had like a I guess she had a t-shirt on underneath it but she had like this butterfly blouse in chiffon which she took off and for some reason I put it on and I wore that because I thought that was better than being bare chested walking through the city so despite all these crazy things she still thought I was cute and sweet and there was something in me. So again, you know, I guess it goes back to, the, and I, some of these stories are in my books and stuff. It boils back down to, you know, whatever I thought was the right thing to do or not the right thing to do. The main thing to do is to be yourself 
and to realize that you know relationships are not built on the way you look certainly not covered in dog poop or certainly not covered in mosquito bites or anything else it has actually much more to do with how you behave and how kind you are how sweet you are how charming you might be and those are the things that actually were the things that were the winning factors and it goes both ways like the way she treated me the way i spoke to her those were our, our chemistry was there from day one you know and Actually, the day I met my wife, that day that I showed her my mosquito bites, months before we even got to go on a date or I even gave her a peck on the cheek, I called my mum that day and said, I've met the woman I'm going to marry. And my mum thought crazy. So I knew I was definitely after this one girl back then straight away. So, you know, you know when you know. Well, and even now, the posts that you've made, you're still so in love with her. That's so evident. It's one of the things that I've seen about you since for years when I, since I followed you is the love that you have for her. It, you know, it is what it is. I can't hide it. You know, what, what can you do? I've actually, it's funny. I remember one time someone telling me, you know, Nigel, you shouldn't post so much about your wife. You shouldn't post so much about how much you like it. And I was like, why? And they were like, because there's all these other people out there that might have a crush on you or might be interested. And then they're not going to be anymore. And they won't want to follow you because that you're not available. Or, you know, you should be a bit more mysterious. You should be a bit more like, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't really care about what anybody else thinks, first of all. And second of all, I'm like, you know, I'm not here for everyone else. I'm just living my life. I'm just doing me. I'm doing what I do. And this is what I'm about. That person wasn't the only person. I've been told by several people, like, oh, you know, you should make it a bit more, you know, less personal. But I am who I am and I do what I do. And, you know, I'm a family man. I, you know, married with two kids, a dog, a cat, and a lizard. And, you know, we have fun and we get on. And, you know, and I'm I'm very lucky for the life I've led and life I lead and what I've done and what I'm hoping to do. And I hope that whoever I can inspire with those stories, that that's going to be, you know, enough. And, you know, and I think we need a bit more realness in this world and we need a lot more love in this world. That's for sure. You know? Absolutely. But I think that's why your personal brand has been so successful after the show because of how authentic you are. And you've been able to leverage that to go into all these different endeavors because of the authenticity that you bring. And that's what people love about you gravitate towards you. Thank you. I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, I think too, there's, you've got guys out there, you've also got to step out of your comfort zone, you know? And I think that one of the things that I've been sort of perhaps good at, not to tap my own, you know, back, but is that I don't take no for an answer very easily. Hence, I went after my wife for months before she even gave me a kiss. But, and I, you know, despite the poop and everything else, I'm like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're going to love me. <laughs> um, but um, you, I, I let me show you again. I've got nothing, nothing else I can do. But, you know, I was working, this is an example. I, you know, I created my own furniture line, which I had for, have had for many years now. But back when I first started it with Art Van Furniture, I was actually photographing for them. I was shooting their catalogs and what have you. And I sat down with Mr. Van and he said to me, so Nigel, what, you know, what are you thinking for the creative vision for the, the new catalog and the campaign? And we would have this, this talk a couple of times a year. And I said, well, you know what, Mr. Van, what I'd really like to do is come up with my own furniture line. And he looked at me and he said, what? And I was like, I want to, I'd love to do my own furniture. And he said, well, okay, but that's what's that got to do with anything we're not we're talking about you shooting the furniture we have and you know we have lines by cindy crawford and kathy island and you know and all these other brands that they have and it's a huge it was this at the time it was the third largest furniture company in america uh, art man and i said yeah no i know exactly i, I make you know kathy island was is a model cindy crawford is a model if a model can have a furniture line surely a photographer can have one too and he said well why and i'm like well i'm like look a model 
is in the cat is in the pictures. And I understand they're a part of the creative process because I work with them all the time. But a photographer thinks of light, texture, framing. You know, we create art with our with what we see. So you know, take all that into account. Why would I not be able to create furniture? You know, and see the the colors and the lines and you know and, and how that would all come together. That's why you booked me to photograph it, right? And he looked at me and he was like, okay. And then literally again, nothing came of it. It took me, it was about a year and a half later. And I set, what I had done though, is I'd put the seed out. I put the idea out and I told this guy about it. And he came to me a year and a half later and he said, Nigel, remember that story you told me about wanting to start a furniture line? Well, you know, we were talking in-house and we want to do something new, you know, and exciting for the company. And everyone agrees that it would be amazing to do a furniture line with you. So- <laughs> I launched six months after that conversation. So almost two years from the time I first said this with 215 SKUs, huge collection. Wow. That opened in 50 stores around the United States. And for my actual opening, they flew in Cindy Crawford, whose collection I had been photographing for a while for them, who came and she opened my collection on my behalf for me, which was unbelievable. And she even said, I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this because you're clearly going to be competition for me. But nonetheless, as a friend and someone who I, you know, appreciate everything you've done with me and all the rest of it, she she launched it for me. And, and so, again, you know, you have to think outside the box. You've got to think about what's possible. You can't pigeonhole yourself and you've got to push it. You've got to push the boundaries. And, you know, there's enough people out there who tell you you can't do something or you shouldn't do something or you're not right for this. But, you know, you have to kind of make it happen. You've got to get out there and, you know, keep the dream alive, so to speak. I had no idea you you did that. You've done everything. <laughs> Not everything. I haven't gone to space. You haven't gone to space. What do you want to do next? What is your ultimate goal? I mean, I don't know that I have an ultimate goal. You know, I think that when I think of something and I want to do it, I I try to do it. So whether it's making movies, directing films, writing books, I've done fragrances of my own furniture lines. There's very little that we personally I've wanted to do that I haven't had a chance to do at some level. You know, I've acted in films even. I've had the opportunity to do things like that. You know, then there's all the other sort of other smaller pieces like, you know, my own radio show on Sirius XM and podcasts and, and what have you. I'm currently in the process of making my own alcohol business. Yes. That's a, another side sort of hustle, if you like. But it was like, it, what's that got to do with fashion? What's that got to do with anything I've ever done before? It wasn't. It was like, you know what? I like a cocktail just like the next person. Let me create a cocktail business. Let me get into this industry. And so I set about with that idea in mind, about three and a half, four years ago, I wanted to create a TV show called The Shaken and Stirred Show, but then the pandemic hit. So instead, I created a podcast, which you appeared on, and we met. And I shot 135 episodes of the podcast during wow. the pandemic. And from them, I'm now doing the TV show. It's actually happening. And that's in production right now. Um, and I'm launching a cocktail martini business called The Barker Company, which will launch Q1 of next year. And, you know, we're going to come out with an espresso martini. It'll be the very first thing we do. And then, which people love, it's the third most popular ordered cocktail. Well, so again, it's you think it, you dream it. But then you also have to make it happen, right? It's not just, oh, I think I thought about it. I want to set the stone, figure out how you're going to do it, and then start, you know, and it took me three years. It's like, but with the vision was you have to have authenticity in the business. You have to, people have to know you in that space. So you start thinking, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to create a TV show. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to, and people will often say, oh, well, you're very lucky because you have that you know, platform. True, true. But I didn't always. And, you know, you, you have to think of what you're doing with that platform and what, you know, and there are so it's like, and how to create that platform and what does that platform mean and it's you know I think it's it's very important that 
you just you use whatever you have you know, to make the most of your life, but also to make the most for other people's lives so that, you know, you touch as many people as possible and do the right thing. And But you have to be motivated from the right place as well. You can't, if it's not motivated from the right spot, you know, and it's, and it's out of greed or something, it's not, I don't think it's really going to work successfully, at least. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I heard a lot, especially early on, was stick with what you know, stay in your lane, right? No, exactly. I, I, so that's what exactly that's the problem. I said, as I said, people will pigeonhole you. They will tell you that you would need to do this because you did that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. no, 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 no. I this is my life. I only have one, and so if I live it well, hopefully one will be enough. You know, so um, I know one doesn't want to have too many regrets. Obviously, there are things I could have done differently, and things I could have done better. But I can't go backward. I can only go forward. Right. So. I don't want, so you keep on making sure you have, you know, as, as, le- as few regrets as possible going forward. I think one of the, my luckiest things I ever did was to marry my wife and meet her oh, in the first place, because I think that has been, that set the direction and tone for the success of the rest of my life, because the massive confidence one gets from having someone who's by your side, who cherish, adore, and loves you as much as you love them. And that trust and confidence you get gives you massive direction, you know, and I think that's, it's probably the you know the biggest secret to my success. Finding a great partner. Yeah. If somebody were to ask you now, how could they start building a personal brand? What would you tell them? I mean, it's never been easier, right? Social media has made everyone have a personal brand. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be, and I still find it slightly awkward when people say to me, your brand is this. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> like what? I I don't have a brand. I, I'm not a brand. I'm just a person. I'm you know I don't I don't want to be a brand. I just want to be me. You know what does that mean? Um, because with the brand, you sort of think, well, you know, brands are known for things. You know, and and I, and I kind of want to be more flexible than that. I want to be able to known for whatever I want to be known for. And if I want if this, you know, so therefore, which goes against most brands, right? Brands in general are are stick in your lane type of things. You know, very few brands can be like Supreme, who are sort of who are now known for being able to do any, everything. So they managed to be the niche of I can do anything brand, right? So you expect Supreme to come out with a scooter one day, a Zippo lighter the next, like line of clothing, and then a surfboard, and then glasses, and then an iPhone case, right? It can do anything they want because they put Supreme on it and they just been that came that brand. But that was highly unusual. Most people are like, yeah, I'm a clothing brand and I make clothing and I can do other clothing things. And then if I become a lifestyle brand, I can dip into home and I can play in that area. I might write a book about what I'm about, you know, and you sort of play in that zone and then the aesthetic kind of goes everywhere. But, you know, a lot of what I do these days is creative direct for different brands in general. So I come in and I help guide them and help build brands from the ground up and both big and small companies as big as Sony and Marriott to startups. And it's for me, it's about helping direct the ideas and the concepts and, you know, grounding them so that they have some substance and authenticity and believability behind them. You know, real story. Story is everything. So I tell people all the time, if you you know want to do something, create the story around it. Where did it come from? No one likes something that just came out of nowhere. It doesn't mean anything. There's no history to it. History is powerful. You know, knowledge, history, it gives something some sort of credence. And so people like to hold on to that and they want to know about it, want to research it, want to know why, how you are, what the brand is somehow, you know, should be involved in this subject matter or can tell me about this thing. And, you know, so it's hard with people because they just started out of nowhere. But, you know, I'm always like, well, 
start building the, the basis. And hence, for example, my daughter with modeling, like you're going to get into this, you're going to do it slowly, you're going to do it one thing at a time, and you're going to get a good understanding of it. And myself, when I started modeling, as I mentioned, I'd actually studied pattern cutting, fashion design, weaving, tailoring, all these things which are connected to the fashion industry, which I had no idea would be so useful later on. But they set this massive groundwork for that I knew when I started working with designers as a model, they were always touched by the fact that I understood and appreciated how much work had gone into the design of the garment and why certain aspects of it were important. And when I started shooting, I understood that it was important to learn about hair and makeup, learn about styling, learn about all the different pieces that I would need to have on my set with me. Not that I wanted to be everyone or do everyone's job, but it helped me guide the people who worked for me. It helped me understand how much work they were needing to do and put into things. And if you have a general knowledge of everything and everybody who works around you, it makes you a better CEO, it makes you a better you know, business person. And as a brand, it helps you understand all the things that go into you know, building that brand. Brilliant. I love that. Fantastic. All right, Nigel, I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was fantastic. And I love your stories. <laughs> yeah. Where... Nigel Barker across all social media. Anything else that uh, we can go check out? The Shaken and Stirred podcast. Anything yep, else? Out there. Go check out the Shaken and Stirred podcast everywhere you get good podcasts. So, you know, on Apple Podcasts and, you know, iTunes, Spotify, all those places. Look out for the Barker Company, Espresso Martinis coming to a bar near you <laughs> soon or, or your off license or your liquor store, whatever you call it, wherever you are in the world listening to this. And most importantly, just keep the dream alive for yourself. You know, I think that the most important thing, guys, out there is, you know, do yourself a favor, be kind to yourself. You know, people talk about compassion and ultimately you need to love yourself. And I mean that in the best possible way, that if you don't love yourself and you're not kind enough to yourself to give yourself the chance, then other people probably won't either. So, you know, understand that you just be good and kind to yourself because it's very easy to have those inner demons to tell yourself you can't do it, you shouldn't do it, you're not worth it. And you know, we grew up in a society where that happens a lot and we have to try and overcome that and surround ourselves with good people who back you up, have your back and tell you, yes, you can. And I've had a lot of that. So I've been very lucky. Oh, brilliant. Thanks again, Nigel. This was fantastic. I know everybody's going to get so much value out of it. It was my pleasure. It's lovely to see you. 